So, good morning. My name is Harry Strauss. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Forest Grove Church. And um, it is my uh, calling and my uh, responsibility today to bring uh, today's message to you. Uh, first of all, greetings from the believers in Panama, uh, more specifically from the Waunan people. As you would know, or as many of you would know, uh, a number of us were on a missions trip to Yavisa, Panama, a community about 260 kilometers east of Panama City. Our main assignment was the building of a missionary home, which will be used by MB missionaries Alan and Colleen Foster, whom we uh, provide support to from our church here. I have a couple of slides, uh, the first being of the house when we arrived uh, with the basement walls already up. So there you would see a picture, and that's what it was like when we first arrived. And then the second picture is our last day there, and uh, taken from the same vantage point, and uh, reflects what we were able to accomplish over those uh, eight days of work. I should note that overall, the team included the Waunan people. There were generally seven or eight Waunan uh, people that were there. Uh, there was a local bricklaying crew there as well, and uh, then there were uh, us as well as a team, so that we were on general about 20 people on the site at any given point of time. As I was sharing earlier in our 9.30 session where we reported about the trip more fully, if Saskatchewan safety, occupation safety, and health were on the site, they would have probably shut us down. It was just too many people moving around, uh, no hard hats on, and but... Um, uh, praise the Lord, none of us were injured. So on behalf of the Forest Grove team, uh, thank you for sending us and allowing us to be a part of this uh, project over the last two or three weeks. Uh, so today we are starting a new preaching series, First uh, John, Second John, and Third John for the months of June and July. And the sermon series is entitled Alignment. Uh, today we'll be looking at the first 12 verses of uh, 1 John. John, as might be implied or suggested, was in all likelihood written by John. We say in all likelihood written by John because there's no indication given within the letter itself that he wrote it. But the language is very akin to the Gospel of John and even perhaps one might suggest also with the book of Revelation, which we would suggest which was written by him as well. So the date of writing was probably about 8590 A.D., which would suggest that when John wrote this letter that he was advanced in years. It might be accurate to say that John was a senior citizen when he wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. At times we get that sense of that fatherly, and maybe we don't know if he was a grandfather or not, but that grandfatherly sort of feel from the book, uh, even chapter 2, verse 1, we'll, when we get to that verse, he starts off by saying, my dear children. And it has obviously a, a very fatherly tone to it that might be really consistent with someone that is perhaps advanced in years and perhaps a senior citizen. Um, what I really find interesting, and many of you know that I, I love the book of Revelation and and Revelation, if it was written by John, the apostle would have been written after 1 John in all likelihood. And when you think about all of the imagery and the drama of 1 John, when I was thinking about this earlier this week, and I've never had this thought before in all the years that I've been looking at the book of Revelation, Revelation was written by a senior. I thought that's a really cool 
cool contribution by someone more advanced in years. Who would have thought, eh? Who would have thought that the Spirit of God would have taken a senior and given him all of these amazing images, these experiences where he's transported into heaven, and he comes out with the book of Revelation? Amazing. I, I still still sort of struck by I only realized that two or three days ago. Amazing thing. Anyway, the message for today is from 1 John. And the message is, what can we learn from this spiritual mentor, senior spiritual mentor? And the focus on today, the title of the message today is Marks or Characteristics of the Believer in Christ. And as we walk through those first 12 verses, we'll be identifying six different marks of the believer in Christ. Now, we could identify many more. There's actually many more within this text. But those are the ones that really surface to my attention. And as we go through these 12 verses, uh, going back to the overall theme for the month of June and July is this theme of alignment. And so when we consider these marks or characteristics of the believer in Christ, the invitation really is there for you to be considering whether there is alignment in my life with that which was reflected by John and then became part of the inspired word of God as we look at 1 John. So, let's just jump right into the text. We'll be going one or two verses at a time, and we'll be providing some background to the book as well as we work through these verses. So, number one, six different marks. Here's the first one I got identified from verse one. An intensity for the Christian life. That's the mark of a believer in Christ, that there is an intensity in his and her life or a passion for the things of God. The text says as such, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, why do I suggest that intensity is a mark that I derive from this verse right here. Three reasons, very brief reasons that I would suggest to you. First, this is a letter that John is writing to believers in Asia Minor. And the interesting thing is he jumps right into the heart of what he wants to say without any salutation or identification. There is no, to the saints in Asia Minor, grace and peace to you. He is intent on saying something and he jumps right into it, uh, right into the topic, reflecting perhaps a certain measure of urgency and intensity. So it would be similar to someone that might phone us and is so intent on saying something that they blurt it out on the phone without any introduction or salutation to say, hi, how are you? So it's not being rude, but, but you can pick up there's an intensity here. There is no, this is John to the churches in Asia Minor. He jumps into what he wants to say because there's something that's really important here. Secondly, there's an energy with the verbs. There's four verbs there, but the very first two verbs are in a tense. Uh, those verbs, for that which we've heard from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen. Now, both of those tenses in the Greek language are in the perfect tense. My Greek professor, one of them used to say that whenever you see the perfect tense in the Greek language in the New Testament, there probably is something really valuable here. And the idea of the perfect tense in the, in the Greek language is something that happened in the past, but it continues to abide in terms of value and impact as well today. 
So when John is saying here, and he uses perfect tenses for these first two verbs, he's not just saying that which we have heard. He is saying that which we have heard, and we continue to hear. It continues to have impact on us. He is saying not only that which we have seen, he is saying that which we have seen, and we continue to see as well with our eyes, our spiritual eyes. And so there's an added energy just with especially those two verbs with the tense that John, tenses that, uh, that John uses with those two verbs. And then thirdly, there's a, there's a meaning the following, the, the, following, the, the following two verbs which we have looked at and which our, which our hands have touched. The word for looked at means to look closely. And one translation is to, to gaze upon this one. And even the word for touch carries the ideas, uh, the idea of handling and examining closely. So John is saying here that they, they saw and they, and they touched Jesus Christ. And it could be referring to pre-resurrection, but it can also be referring to post-resurrection where they, oh my, could, could you imagine this? They, the resurrection has happened and now they are they're touching him and, and they're gazing upon him. And they're interacting with this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for those reasons, I say there's an intensity in this verse. And really, John, if he were probably reading this verse, he, it would probably be more like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and continue to hear, that which we have seen with our eyes and continue to see with our eyes, that which we have looked at and gazed upon, that which our hands have touched and examined, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So, again, we don't pick that up in the English language, but it's there. In terms of this verse, there's an intensity that's right off the bat with verse 1. So, why the intensity and the passion? Well, it's part and parcel of the Christian life. But for John, it is more He's responding to a heresy. He is sparring with an opponent, one suggesting that Christ never actually manifested himself in the flesh. So the incarnation was under challenge. Jesus never became fully man. And John confronts this by saying, no, 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 we looked at him, we touched him, we saw him, we continue to hear this, we continue to, we continue to see this. And so he confronts a certain level of teaching that was prevalent at that, at that point of time. And in so doing, we get a glimpse into the intensity of his own life, which in, a turn, in turn becomes really a gem for us and a reminder to us of, of a mark of the Christian life. Um, what do we learn from John here? Be it implied from the text. The text is primarily about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but also implied within this text is this intensity Christianity is not a casual religion. It is not casual. Following Christ calls for a certain level of intensity and passion in life. When you consider the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, that's not a casual, that's not an invitation to something really casual and part-time an invitation for something that calls for a great deal of intensity in life. 
So the alignment question really is, as we think about our own lives, is there an intensity and passion for the things of Christ in my life? Or am I treating a lot of this in some sort of casual way? Um, The call of the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. So, you know, even when we were traveling to Panama, I was taking out my Kindle and I was looking for some book or books to read traveling there and back and I didn't buy this book, and I, so I didn't read it, but I came across, and I've seen this title before, the, the Slumber of Christianity, which is a book that says a lot about, perhaps, Christianity in North America. That I, I guess the author is suggesting there are a lot of people coming to the Christian faith with a casual perspective and attitude. And the call, the commitment through Scripture, and then reflected through the life of John and this intensity that is there in verse 1. It is a call for an intensity and passion about the things of God. Number two, verses two and three, <clears throat> a healthy occupation with eternal life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John was occupied with a message of eternal life. It's here in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. It's in the Gospel account as well. And it it is certainly pictured in the final book, Revelation, as well. We could call John the Apostle of eternal life. Um, When I, as a university student, first gave consideration to the Christian faith, uh, one of the things that I was most drawn to was this emphasis on eternal life. I was a commerce student uh, studying, uh, wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ, and I knew that the world of commerce, whatever my vocation would be, would only take me so far and ultimately... And, and, and I thought in terms of my net present value today was zero if there was no serious value a hundred years from now or even a thousand years from now sometime in the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. From others, I had picked up that the, the, from, the, from other, others, I had picked up that the Bible and especially the writings by John had much to say about eternal life. I didn't have a Bible, but I had cause, nor did I ever have cause to read a Bible personally. So I went down the Coles bookstore here in Midtown Plaza to see if I could purchase a Bible. Uh, Given that I was unaccustomed to spiritual things, uh, given that I was uh, basically relationally in a circle of guys and friends where it was not a, a manly thing to be involved in spiritual things, Um, I went down to Cole's bookstore, and as I came into the religious section to see if I could find a Bible there, uh, I actually looked over my shoulder to see if there was anyone there that would see that I was in the spiritual section. And with a great deal of awkwardness, I finally found a Bible. Uh, This very blue book here, I think I paid $5 for it. And... um, 
walked up to the counter so awkwardly because uh, would anyone potentially see me buying a Bible of all things? I put it on the counter. Oh, my goodness, this lady, I don't even know who she is, but she now knows that I'm buying a Bible. And uh, I felt so immensely awkward uh, with uh, that transaction. I was so delighted that when I paid it, she put in a bag and I was able to walk out of the store. Uh, but it was this Bible that I bought for five bucks. But I went home with this very book right here, and I went into First John, the Gospel of John, and I read, and I was looking for those verses and those passages that talked about eternal life. Uh, it comes through frequently in the writings of John, and John is occupied, maybe in a sense we could even say preoccupied with this message of eternal life. Even the verbs here in verses 2 and 3 <clears throat> testify to it. And, and we proclaim to you are both in a tense, a present tense, which carries the idea of ongoing action. So it's not just we testify, but it's the idea of we are testifying to you the message of eternal life. We are proclaiming to you, we are doing this ongoing the message of eternal life as we bring it to you. Uh, about three weeks ago, just before we went off to Panama, I had the TV on and I was listening to an interview on Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose is an American. He has an interview show and he was interviewing Tom uh, Brokaw of the NBC, who is retired, uh, was a, an announcer on NBC. But a significant part of their conversation centered on uh, this announcer's illness and the related awareness of his own mortality. Reference was made to a quote from someone else by both of these men. The quote was, We need to be as occupied with what will be our eulogy as we are with our resumes. And I was struck by that in terms of, yes, we need to be, especially we're younger and we're in the working force, we want to be concerned about our resumes. But they're saying from their perspective, we also need to be aware of what our eulogy will look like as well. And as I listened to that, I thought not only our eulogy, but also, also uh, we would, I would add, we need to be occupied with the hope and the message of eternal life. And the alignment question really would be, is there an occupation with eternal life? Part of the resilience for the living of life today can be derived from a significant awareness of eternal life. So even Paul, in his book in Romans chapter 8, I consider my present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so he doesn't use the language of eternal life, but certainly he is in the mindset of eternal life. So number two, this, this, this occupation with eternal life. Uh, number three would be just simply the word joy. In verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. Uh, the word complete means um, full, replete, and at times it was even used of being crammed in. Uh, and John is taking this from the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus in John 15, verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, that doesn't mean, at least this would be my judgment, that we would necessarily carry a a perpetual grin on our faces, uh, though perhaps some genuinely uh, do as such. Uh, 
Um, you know, I think about Joel Osteen. Those of you acquainted with Joel Osteen, he, he has a perpetual grin on his face, those of you who have seen him on TV. Um, and maybe that is totally genuine in terms of his life. Reality is in this broken and fallen world, there are many occasions where believers have caused to be discouraged, uh, heartbroken, sad, and and at times perhaps even outright depressed. Uh, All the the lament psalms, there are many psalms that speak of lament and some of that sadness and that brokenness and that, that sense of being downcast. But still, as a rule, a joy should be the mark of the believer of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, Paul even says, rejoice always. I say to you, rejoice again, rejoice always. So even reflecting on the Waunan people, I think it'd be fair to say that most of these people compared to the Western standards are poor, uh, very poor. Yet as a people, they seem to be marked by a joy that prevails. And the alignment question really that comes to us is that as we think of John's life here and the, the mentoring of John and this reference to joy, the question is, is there a joy that prevails in our world? And if not, how do we bring alignment back that we might experience that ongoing and abiding joy with Jesus Christ? Trait number four is walking in the light, verses 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. We claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness. We lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The background to this, the false teachers behind this, someone that John is again sparring with, is that there was an understanding and teaching that there was a self-grant, that there was a separation between the spirit and the material, or more precisely, the human body. So there was a self-granted license by some to do whatever they wanted to do with the body, and then at the same time claim to have full fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So an example might have been that engaging in sexual sin on Saturday night was deemed totally appropriate because it's separate from the Spirit. And then on Sunday morning, one fully engaging in the worship of God and seeing no problem with that at all. John is challenging that thinking here in these verses. The Christian life sees and embraces an integration between the body and the Spirit as well. And so hence in these verses, there's a call by John to call to live in the light and not to live in the darkness in terms of sinfulness. And again, that would be consistent with the rest of the scripture as well. Even Paul, as he's writing to the believers in Ephesus, he says, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. So the alignment question of walking in the light is, am I doing anything that would be deemed as walking in the darkness? The exhortation, of course, from Scripture and the understanding from this passage of Scripture is to flee from darkness 
to flee from that sinful activity and to move into the world of the light. So walking in the light would be the fourth characteristic. <clears throat> Number five is confession of sin, verses 8, 9, and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Another background issue here with the writing of this letter is not only where John, some of John's opponents lacks on spirituality and lifestyle, but some of them were also suggesting that they were without sin. And if they were without sin, then there was no need for the confession of sin. So hence in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, well, then we make him out, God, to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Some religious traditions uh, would use a general confession in their liturgies. Uh, one Lutheran denomination uses words, uh, at least the initial words, that are from the very verses that we just read. So the pastor might say, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then the people respond by saying, but if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the people respond, let us, or the pastor responds, let us then confess our sins to God our Father. And then the people then confess their sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And the confession then goes on. And then the pastor ultimately responds with a statement of grace to the people within the congregation. The alignment question simply is, is there a spirit of confession of sin? Uh, not necessarily as the Lutherans might uh, do it, but in some way where at different points we find ourselves confessing our sins. You know, if we get to the point that we see ourselves as being somewhat beyond the need to confess sin, we would be flirting with the same sort of false teaching that is here reflected in verses 8, 9, and 10. And the life and the pilgrimage of the believer in Jesus Christ is, is marked by a confession of sin. It's interesting that some of the saints of old that have passed away and you read their journals, the older they got and the further they were in their Christian journey, they became more aware of their sinfulness, more aware of the need to confess their sin before God. And if we think we've arrived and we're beyond that, and we celebrate exclusively the gift of justification and that there's no need for the confession of sin today, then in a sense we're flirting with the sin of verses 8, 9, and 10. And John challenges that. One of the marks of the believer in Jesus Christ is that there is an ongoing spirit of confession of sin. And then the final one, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, is an understanding of our righteousness in Jesus Christ. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. <clears throat> he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does it mean to have our sins atoned for? What does it mean to have the righteousness of Christ? Um, 
I want to relate a simple illustration that I heard years ago from a program, a ministry called Evangelism Explosion. Um, but the illustration goes like this. And, and, and every illustration falls short ultimately, but it conveys the idea of what it means to have our sins atoned for and to know and to have the gift of righteousness. Um, allow this hand to represent us. It's a hand to represent God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, God loves humanity. God loves Harry Strauss. Allow this book to represent the sins of my life. Everything that I have done, I guess everything that I will do, things that I have failed to do, the thoughts that I have in my mind that are impure and that are sinful as deemed by Jesus Christ, um, every action that is inappropriate, you know, going back to evangelism explosion, they said, well, let's tabulate your sins. How often do you sin in a day? You know, and so you, 10 times a day, well, 365 days, 3,650 years, days, uh, sins, and then multiply them by the years that you like. And so then this would be the catalog of my sin, which is quite significant. And sin is in my life. God, who is all holy, wants to have fellowship and relationship with me. But this sin is an issue because of the holiness of God. Jesus Christ comes into the world. He dies on the cross for the sins of the whole world, for humanity, Harry Strauss included. And my sins are placed and the sins of humanity placed on him. Where does that leave me? It leaves me right in the eyes of God, positionally. Positionally, I am now righteous in the eyes of God. That is the phenomenally good news of the gospel. So a key, two key verses on this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the final verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might have the righteousness of Christ. And in the other key verse, at least for me, which is perhaps one of the most overlooked verses in the Bible in terms of significance, is Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, and now the latter portion of it. I wish this latter portion were being quoted all over the place. But it's not. But here's what it says. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, the Lord Jesus Christ? And when we understand this, we can come to Romans chapter 5, verse 17 and recognize that we, because we have received the abundant provision of God's grace and we have received this gift of righteousness, the question is, how much more will they reign in this life through the Lord Jesus Christ. The alignment question on this is, do we understand the gift of righteousness? Uh, do we understand that gift of righteousness that is mine in Jesus Christ? Uh, the alignment question is, am, am I aligned up with this really good news about the righteousness that is ours in Christ? So, as we move to conclusion and worship team, if you would be please coming up. The six questions going backwards. Uh, 
with the text as we identify them. Is my life marked by an understanding of the gift of righteousness? Is my life marked by a, a quickness to confess my sin? Is my life marked by a desire to walk in the light and the light alone? Is my life marked by a spirit of joy? Is it marked by a healthy occupation with a message of eternal life? And then ultimately, too, is my life marked by a passion and intensity for the things of Christ? Uh, may God help us where necessary in terms of realignment in our life if we're off on any one of those six different points.